Today on Civil War Talk Radio, we'll be talking with Albert Castell, retired history professor from Western Michigan University and author of the award-winning decision in the West, the Atlanta Campaign of 1864, as well as Winning and Losing in the Civil War, and numerous other books. We'll be back in a minute with Albert Castell. efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich at East Carolina University, and with me today is Albert Castell, author of numerous books about the Civil War. Albert, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, I hope. Uh, We're glad to have you with us. You have written... Many uh, on many subjects about the Civil War, but I thought we'd jump right ahead into what you're working on right now. I understand you're doing uh, a new book on Union generals in the Civil War. Well, it's uh, new and this way. That uh, the title of the book is uh, is the working title is uh, the Union generals who won the Civil War and the war among themselves, and. Um, what it uh, endeavors to do is to um, uh, both describe uh, how uh, certain Union generals uh, won key battles that enabled the uh, North to win the Civil War, but at the same time, how uh, these same generals, or most of them, uh, became what they uh, became uh, by the end of the Civil War, uh, the top Union generals. Uh, there was a great deal of uh, rivalry among uh, Union generals. I think the same is true of Confederate generals. And uh, Lincoln once remarked, uh, I never knew before how jealous generals could be. And uh, now a lot of he had ample opportunity to find out. <laughs> 
they certainly did. A lot has been written about rivalries within the Confederate high command and some of the difficult personalities there. But you're suggesting we can find the same thing on the Union side. Very much so. Who are some of the people who uh, feature in this, this interpretation? Well, of course, Grant, and then there's uh, Sherman, and um, there's McClellan, and uh, there's Rosecrans, and uh, there's um, Halleck, and there's uh, Meade, and uh, Sheridan, and uh, George H. Thomas. Well, out of all that, there they uh, they're the star attractions. That is a, an all-star lineup in terms of Civil War uh, history. Let me ask you about maybe the least likely one of that uh, group. Recently, we had a chance to talk to John Marsleck about his biography of uh, Henry Halleck. Uh, not much has been written about Halleck over the years, and and he appears in your uh, in your work now. What's your view on, on Halleck? Well, my view of Halleck is that... Um, in some ways, he was a uh, very good uh, general in the, when it comes to um, organizing and uh, planning, but um, he simply was not suited to uh, command in the field. He would be a battlefield commander. And uh, also, he found himself, uh, once he did become the top Union general, uh, general in chief, uh, position he acquired in uh, July of 1862 um, as a result of uh, McClellan's uh, failure in the Peninsular Campaign. Uh, he uh, found himself uh, in an extremely difficult situation. There was no precedent in all-American uh, military history for um, someone to um, have a position such as he held. Uh, in previous wars, uh, our army had been so small that the uh, commanding general, like, for example, uh, George Washington, I mean, the overall commanding general of all American forces, could uh, personally lead the uh, main American army, as Washington did. And the same remained true uh, well, in the most recent war before the uh, Civil War, the Mexican War, where uh, Winfield Scott, the uh, top United States general, uh, went in person to uh, Mexico to uh, command uh, our main army there. But uh, this simply was not possible uh, in the Civil War. But you had uh, armies of uh, more than 100,000 men uh, fighting over a vast uh, region. And uh, uh, for a while, uh, McClellan tried to do that. He was general-in-chief, and he also tried to uh, command at the same time the uh, Army of the Potomac, uh, the main Union Army in the East, but uh, it, it just didn't work. He, he couldn't do it. And uh, that's uh, so uh, Lincoln uh, relieved him of the position of uh, general-in-chief so that he could uh, concentrate on being commander of the Army of the Potomac. And... Uh, Lincoln himself, along with uh, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, in effect became the uh, general-in-chief. Well, that didn't work out well either, and uh, so um, he uh, brought in Halleck. Well, Halleck found himself uh, occupying a position in which uh, 
he simply could not uh, do more than, uh, as it turned out, to be a sort of a advisor or chief of staff uh, to Lincoln and Stanton. Um, because uh, it was a physical impossibility for him to uh, serve in Washington and at the same time uh, command uh, any army in the field, uh, above all, the uh, Army of the Potomac. And uh, as I've already said, uh, uh, he really was not suited to a, a field command. And uh, furthermore, what we're talking about here is a civil war. And... Uh, Civil war is different than a war uh, with uh, some foreign nation. Uh, political considerations have to be uh, of very great importance and indeed uh, a priority. And uh, there, of course, uh, the president uh, has to take on the uh, main job. It's his main responsibility. Now, when Halleck eventually is replaced in that job by General Grant later in the war, Mm-hmm. He doesn't actually take command of the Army of the Potomac. As you point out, it's really too big a job to command an army in the field and act as, as general-in-chief. But he does make his headquarters with Meade's Army of the Potomac, rather than try to run the war from Washington. Well, what are uh, you doing there? Well, Grant uh, solved the problem uh, in a very pragmatic way, which is his style. He... Uh, became the de facto commander of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, I mean, he would uh, issue orders through uh, Meade, who was the uh, titular commander of the uh, Army of the Potomac, but uh, uh, he was uh, actually uh, in command of it. And uh, at the same time, he uh, assigned uh, missions to his uh, main generals in the uh, uh, other theaters, uh, notably uh, Sherman in uh, Georgia, and uh, left it up to them to uh, achieve uh, what was uh, what Grant hoped that they would achieve. And, uh, well, this did not work out in many cases, but uh, it did succeed in the case of uh, Sherman. And as a result, Sherman was able, when he took Atlanta, uh, beginning of September 1864, to achieve a uh, decisive uh, victory for the North in that it uh, wrecked the last chance, the last hope, realistic hope, that the uh, Confederacy had of uh, being able to uh, outlast the uh, North, of being able to um, stave off defeat by uh, making the... uh, Northern people so war weary uh, that uh, they would elect uh, McClellan, the president of the United States, uh, on a platform which uh, called for uh, uh, making peace with the southern states uh, on the basis of the southern states could come back into the Union uh, with uh, slavery uh, guaranteed. Now, that brings us back to McClellan, then, uh, who, as you say, runs for president in 1864. His, it's hard to think of any Civil War general who, in some ways, is more curious than, than George McClellan in terms of his combination of, of talent and charisma and uh, ineffectiveness, uh, ultimately, as, as a military leader. 
how how do you understand McClellan? I understand him as uh, be put it, put it bluntly as a extremely conceited man uh, who um, was so accustomed to success that uh, he could not accept uh, failure. If uh, he failed to achieve something, that was always uh, somebody else's fault. He would not ever accept. Uh, the blame or the responsibility for uh, a lack of success, for failure, and uh, um, this led him to, uh, among other things, to uh, greatly exaggerate the uh, size of the uh, Confederate forces opposing him. I mean, he uh, consistently would uh, credit uh, Lee uh, with. Uh, not merely twice as many men as uh, Lee actually had, but sometimes uh, four times as many. And uh, he was always outnumbered. And, uh, well, he uh, was a man who uh, was simply out of his depth uh, for personal reasons, uh, or psychological reasons, uh, be a commander of a... Uh, large army in the field. I'm, I'm struck by the letter he wrote after Antietam uh, when he writes to his wife about uh, how, how those on whose judgment I rely told me I fought the battle as a masterpiece of art. Mm-hmm. I think I'm paraphrasing that a little. Yeah, but you're, you're, you're very close. It, it, it seems remarkable that uh, somebody with responsibility for so many uh, tens of thousands of lives wouldn't trust his own judgment but instead tells his wife, uh, those on whose judgment I rely tell me I did a good job. Well, uh, I think he agreed with what they said. Oh, I, I don't doubt <laughs> that. <laughs> that uh, uh, he uh, simply uh, could not realistically, uh, honestly uh, evaluate himself to himself. Uh, uh, I think Robert Burns, a uh, Scottish bard, uh, once said uh, something to the effect of... Uh, Excuse me, if they, um, um, about um, being able to see ourselves as others see us. And uh, McClellan, a good Scottish name, by the way, uh, was not capable of doing that. No, he, he could see himself as, as the dictator of, of the country, the power of the, the nation, but he, he could not honestly view his own shortcomings. No, he could not. Now, in contrast, you have someone like General Grant, Mm-hmm. who uh, uh, is, well, I, I would say is, is perhaps at least better able to uh, evaluate how others see himself. Well, uh, Grant had tremendous self-confidence. He, uh, but um, he uh, was also realistic in, uh, about what could be done and what he uh, faced. And um, this goes back to um, his first experience in leading troops into what um, he thought was going to be a battle. This was, uh, occurred uh, in July of 1861 in Missouri. He was uh, commanding a regiment of uh, Illinois troops, and um, he learned that there was a um, camp of uh, pro-Confederate uh, partisans nearby, and he set out to uh, attack that uh, 
camp. Well, he writes in his memoirs how marching there, um, he began to worry more and more, and his um, uh, uh, heart rose up into his throat. And um, about this is what's going to happen. I mean, what are the enemy going to do? I mean, how, how, how is this going to turn out? Well, when he arrived uh, at the spot where the camp was supposed to be, he found that the camp was no longer there, that the Confederates had uh, run away, that they were more afraid of him than he was afraid of them. And that, um, he writes, I, I learned a lesson from this, which I never uh, forgot, that the enemy are just as afraid of me as I am of them. And the secret is to um, not be so far so afraid of them. That is one of the great uh, moments, I think, in Grant's memoirs when he describes Mm-hmm. That that experience and it <coughs> is something that actually I think can be of value to anyone who reads it, uh, thinking about how uh, mm-hmm. we face challenges. But maybe the person setting those challenges for us might be just as afraid as we are, and uh, mm-hmm. we can take something away from that. Yeah. Well, um, Sherman uh, recognized this eventually. Uh, he uh, uh, wrote about how he was smarter than Grant. He uh, knew more about military history and theory than Grant and so forth and so on, but uh, where he and everybody else was uh, inferior to Grant is that, uh, well, he, Sherman, uh, the enemy, uh, uh, what the enemy might do, uh, uh, scared him to death, but on the other hand, uh, Grant uh, didn't seem to be bothered by that at all. He really wasn't, and bringing up Sherman brings us to a subject uh, you've written a good bit about. We're going to take a break here and uh, go away for a few minutes. When we come back uh, with Albert Castle, we'll be talking more about uh, General Sherman and other leaders of the Civil War. This is Civil War Talk Radio. 